Thank you, Bonnie, Linda, and Harriet. Wonderful job as always. All right, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 14. I always debate if we're going to read it or not. Um, yeah, today we're not going to read over it first because it's, we're going to do the whole chapter. I've got to keep up with the women's Bible study. It's hard. They do like 18 chapters a week. And they're in Genesis, so I have to do it. Anyway, no, just kidding. It all fits together. That's why we're doing it all together. Um, so we're hopefully, I think we'll be good time-wise. Um, anyway, so, so far in Genesis, though, we're talking about Abram. Um, and last week, we saw how Abram and Lot, they separated. And from that comes a very significant moment for both of them, in that Abram no longer has an heir, and Lot chooses a destiny that will affect him forever, basically. Um, now today, we're going to see how that these two destinies kind of coalesce, um, but also how they're separate as well, in a weird sort of way. Um, and it's going to be interesting, I hope. So let's go ahead and go with verses 1 through 4. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zeor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served under Chedorlaomer, um, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. All right. So in all honesty, there's a few ways to break up this chapter, so to speak. But we're going to start here, and then we'll break it up as we go along, uh, with verses 1 through 4 being the beginning. Um, so we take a brief break, though, from discussing Abram to focus on, I guess, world events at the time. As it is, in those days, with these various kings, there was war. There was a coalition by one group from the east, that is Amraphel, Arioch, uh, Chedorlaomer, and Tidal, and each of these kings of their, their various territories. Um, their coalition then went against the coalition which opposed them from the Dead Sea cities. Uh, these included Bera of Sodom, Bersh of Gomorrah, Shina of Adma, Shemerber of Zobium, and an unnamed king from Bela, which is later called Zoar. So the battle is not discussed at length, at all really. All we know is that they all fought against one another in the Valley of Siddim. Ultimately, the Dead Sea cities lost the battle and became subjects of the eastern kings, likely paying a tribute to them. Along with this, there's a number of technical points that we should mention. Uh, the first is that very few sources have been found out about these various cities and kingdoms. Because of this, we do not have any outside biblical source for the kings mentioned here. Um, this does not mean that they, the events didn't occur, as very often we'll find archaeologists find new and exciting discoveries which point and prove to the existence of many of the events which we thought were simply lore. Um, and this has been happening repeatedly. Archaeology is a great tool because we do find all this stuff to be actually very accurate. Still, um, though that should be the I thought that should be mentioned because of that. Regardless, um, the text we are dealing with is often considered very old as it points to what we find with added information, such as Bela, that is Zeor. It's telling us that it was later changed, the name was changed at some point. So because of that, we know it's old because people have already 
added things to it, so to speak. Not added, but have told us more about it later on. Um, so the point is that the stage is set, and for 13 years we find these various city-states of the Dead Sea region being subjects to these northern kings. Now the peace, though, would not last too long, as the Dead Sea's kings, they revolt against their overlords after 13 years of being in submission. So now we come to verse 5. In the 14th year, Chedilomer, I have not figured out how to say his name. It's weird. And the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephraim in Ashtaroth, Kenarm, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. And you thought the genealogies were bad. The places are just as bad. <laughs> We're going to keep going. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zeor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. All right. So the second section of the text deals with the response of the eastern kings at the known revolt of their enemy, the Dead Sea Kings. And something we notice immediately is that Chedilomer, for the second time, is given emphasis. The first time is how the Dead Sea Kings served under him in particular, and the second is now when he is the focus from the kings of the east. He's the kind of the head of the, uh, the coalition. He's the one who's in charge. We then learn of their coalition and the direction it went from north to south, then back north. Throughout the discussion, we find many people groups being defeated by these men. Instead of me trying to explain the way it went, I'm going to put up a map, um, which might help us better understand the events of Chedilmer and his, uh, his people group. And I'm going to take my handy-dandy pointing stick. Um, all right, so basically, the, really the eastern kings start out probably over here on the map, east from here. But what happens is, is that they go down here in what's called the King's Road. And it kind of just goes straight down. And all the way down, they're taking out these different territories. But then they come all the way down here and then come back around to the Amalekites and then the Amorites. And right here is where we think is that Valley of Siddim. And so right here is where Gomorrah, Sodom, Bela, Adma, Zebatan, and uh, Basra. And then all the kings just kind of battle. And that's where they lose, all these Dead Sea kings. And basically, Sodom and Gomorrah get pillaged, and then they go back up this way through the north. Um, so I just want to put that up there because, you know, when we're talking about it, it can be hard to picture what exactly is happening. But basically, this is what's happening. They went down and then up, conquering all along the way. Um, and this kind of says something, by the way, of Chedilomer, as I'm calling him. Um, in that he was actually a very wise military leader, wasn't he? Because he's making defeats and defeating all these people all along the way. No one stands up to these guys. 
So after we learn of their goings, they finally come against the Dead Sea cities and their kings, as we just saw. And we learn that the Dead Sea kings outnumbered the eastern kings even five to four. But despite having more kings on their side, we find that they were defeated by the eastern kings. We also find how the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, that they fled, that is, their army fled and fell into the bitumen pits. Um, I'm probably saying that word too. David, you'll correct me later. What this means is unsure. It could mean that they accidentally fell into these pits, causing death, or that they went into those pits to hide, or even that they purposefully jumped into the pits uh, to escape their enemies. We can't be sure. Regardless of this, those who do not fall, jump, or dive into the pits end up fleeing into the hill country. At this point, uh, Chetelemer and his coalition, they have won a final victory. And especially pillage, again, Sodom and Gomorrah. They took the provisions, they took the possessions, whether they be artifacts, food, and even people, as we find Lot himself is taken by this band. It is with the statement about Lot that we finally see how the story plays into the life of Abram. And that's where we get to in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who had been living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner, Um, These were alleys of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led led forth his trained men born in his house. Of them, 318 of them, when I get to a lot of names, it becomes hard to read normal words. Um, (laughs) Let me tell you. 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, the women and the people. All right. So we learned that there was one who had escaped. And so that person who escaped went and told Abram, the Hebrew, what had uh, occurred. It is interesting that Abram is called a Hebrew here as this term is not used by the Hebrews to describe themselves, whereas it is used to describe them by others. Ultimately, this could indicate one of two things. The first is that it could be that he was a descendant of Eber, um, which we find in the Shem genealogy. It could also be a way of describing him. The term Hebrew was often used to describe those during the time who were swords and foreigners. And in this case, it describes Abram well, since he was not originally from Canaan, uh, but also it is only speculation at this point. So we're not really sure why he's called the Hebrew here. Now, regardless, Abram is currently allied with Mamre the Amorite, as well as his brothers Eschol and Aner. It is interesting to consider Abram being allied with the Amorites, but seeing as later on he allies himself with even the Philistines and others, it simply reflects the place where he is at. He is surrounded by all these other people groups who who are currently in the land, and so he allies himself accordingly. At this point, Abram, being told of Lot's capture, gathers his men and his allies to battle against the eastern kings. We learn that he had... 318 trained men born in his house. Now, this reflects slaves and servants who had been born under such circumstances. Um, That they were trained implies that they had some military training of some sort. Further, the fact that he had 318 trained men at his disposal means that he had an estimated probably 1,000 people who served him. 
Abram leads the force against the eastern kings and meets them at Dan. He splits up his forces and defeats his enemies uh, in the night, pursuing them or chasing them out north of Damascus. Once they have been routed, all the possessions from Sodom and Gomorrah are taken, as well as Lot, and as we learn, now learn, women uh, and people who were taken as well. Thus, in this text, we learn that Abram defeats the great milita- military leader, Sherlemer, um, and his coalition. Now, verses 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Shedelamer, and that's the last time I have to say his name, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. So at this point, Abram and the people and the possessions all returned to the Dead Sea Valley, known as the Valley of Shava. They, like many of the other places encountered, we can be entirely sure where, we can't be entirely sure whether it was located, but we do know it was likely somewhere between um, or in the southern Dead Sea area. It is at this valley that the king of Sodom, as well as the king of Salem, come out to see him. Now, some scholars note the contrast between the king of Sodom and the king of Salem and how interesting it is. One is almost obtuse, while the other is very kind. Still, the first focus goes to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Um, Some scholars believe that this is a shortened name for Jerusalem, but it could also be another Salem. We're unsure which exactly is the case, so it seems more likely that Jerusalem is Melchizedek's origin. Likewise, we learn that he brings out bread and wine, which was dining, um, considered dining of kings during the time. Thus, Melchizedek comes to Abram with a royal meal through his long journey. Besides this, all we learn about Melchizedek is that he was a priest of God Most High. That is, a priest of El Elyon. El, in that time period, had two different purposes. The first is that it's a generic name for God, similar to when we say God. It's a generic name for a deity. The second is that it was a name often associated with the highest god in the Canaanite pantheon. So is Melchizedek a priest of the Canaanite deity or of Yahweh, the god of Abram? Um, Scholars are mixed on the issue, though I tend to lean towards the latter for a reason that we'll see in a bit. Beyond that, we are unsure of who Melchizedek is other than this. Uh, Some have said that maybe he's Shem, but if this is the case, why change his name? Instead, it seems Melchizedek is the first known priest king from Jerusalem, a concept which is further fulfilled in Jesus um, and throughout the Davidic line. Melchizedek then blesses Abram and glorifies God Most High, the creator or possessor of heaven and earth. Yet he doesn't give Abram the praise for the victory. Instead, he attributes this to God, who sustained Abram and caused the victory to occur. 
At this point, Abram gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, uh, setting a precedence for uh, tithing. Whether that 10% is from his own belongings or from the spoils of war is not clear, though most say it's the spoils of war, and I agree with that. Ultimately, Abram is blessed by Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is then blessed by Abram. After this moment with Melchizedek, we find the king of Sodom, who, rather bluntly, um, says, Give me the people, but you have your possessions. Keep those. Now, we notice the difference already. There is no mention of God, nor any mention of thanks. This may be a moment in the story which reflects the promise given by Abram by God, or given to Abram by God, that those who bless Abram will be blessed, but those who curse will be cursed. While the king of Sodom does not necessarily curse Abram, as we would think of a traditional curse, he does represent one who dishonors Abram, which in context of the blessing curse motif of chapter 12, fits the bill rather well. And so, at this point, Abram simply responds that he will not take anything other than what his men have eaten and what his allies deserve. As it is, Abram, because Abram is the victor, he deserved, according to ancient practice, to keep all the loot for himself. As it is, he does not want the king of Sodom to claim that he had had any hand in the wealth of Abram. Instead, Abram promises or even swears by God that he will not take any possession for himself. It is interesting that Abram does so by repeating the same thing as Melchizedek, El Elyon, God most high and possessor of heaven and earth. It is because of this, some argue, it is less likely Abram would swear by any other God than the true God who, he has, who has called him by faith. Thus it seems Melchizedek is a priestly king of the one true God, just as Abram states now. Um, now along with that, I had another point, but I lost it, so we'll continue. The main point of this section is to show the world at the time of Abram, the further circumstances of Lot, and most importantly, the provision God has given to Abram by delivering Abram's enemies into his hands. The victory does not necessarily belong to Abram, but instead it belongs to God alone. Likewise, we see the blessing-curse motif in what occurs with Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. Melchizedek blesses Abram and in return is blessed. Meanwhile, the king of Sodom dishonors Abram, which is another way of cursing, and because of that, he will face a greater retribution than even the eastern kings had brought previously. And we'll find that out in a few chapters. All right. So we do have a few application points, and I don't know if anyone else is wondering, how, you, how do we have applications from this? Um, well, challenge accepted. In this chapter, we see a number of different blessings and curses taking place. The first half of the chapter details curses against particular people groups. Uh, specifically, we find the Dead Sea kings being afflicted through these eastern kings, as we call them. Oftentimes, God will use nations against nation in order to bring judgment upon a people. And we see this in the book of Judges. We see this in uh, the history of Israel and of Judah when God uses other nations to come in and to harass his people to, to chastise them. So one can surmise that this is the case here. The Dead Sea cities, and therefore the kings, are already known to be transgressors and sinners according to our text thus far. They grieve God with their ways, and as such, when we know God and his justice, we can be sure that he likely did use these other nations against the Dead Sea kings and cities for this reason. Yet, there is something else to consider, and that is Lot. We notice that Lot does not escape from this. Instead, he is taken away. He's a commoner prisoner of war. 
We see a foreshadowing of Lot in this episode. Whereas he started merely living on the outskirts of Sodom in the last chapter, in this text he's already living in Sodom. Thus, his doom is upon him as he continues to willingly deal and dwell with sinners. The grass is not always greener, as we saw last week. And Lot, in this text, already feels the ramifications of his decisions to live in Sodom. Thus, there is a curse, and it is real. Sodom and Gomorrah have already been judged by God, but there will come an even greater reckoning by God's own wrath being poured out against them. But as for now, we find that God is patient in his chastisement of Lot, and even his chastisement against Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's seen with great effect, his patience. So in the grander theological sense, what we find with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah is the curse being played out against the wicked. And especially with Lot, we find an individual who is sucked into the sinful lifestyle and experiences the devastations because of it. The warning is clear. Do not let sin take hold of you. It is a path that leads only to destruction. It leads only to pain and to sorrow. It is easy to think that the ways of the sinner will lead to prosperity. But think of it. Those who sin and prosper, at least in this story, and as we know of God's will and his justice, they end up with nothing in the end if they continue down that road. Those who do not seek justice, and those who allow themselves to be dominated by sin, will only find a road which leads to the very gates of hell. Harsh words, but the warning must be said. So turn from that state, turn from sin, Turn from the lifestyle of Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn away from it. And this leads to a second um, point that goes with it so well. And that's about the blessing. Even though Sodom and Gomorrah have been judged harshly, we also notice something more. And that is that though they deserve and are worthy of complete destruction already at that point, God still shows patience. And even brings them redemption from the curse and his judgment. Thus, despite deserving utter devastation, God spares them through Abram. Now this leads directly into the blessing aspect of the chapter. We notice how Melchizedek blesses Abram. But the blessing is not only for Abram, but it's also directed at God. The reason for this is that Melchizedek, the kingly priest, recognizes that Abram is not victorious without the power of God on his side. We see this ourselves. The greatest battle of the world is one which is fought against sin and death. Death only occurs because of sin. For the wages of sin is death. We learn this in Romans. Those who die are guilty. And as such, death and sin are the great enemies that we face in our lives. The problem is, we are the ones who are at war with the eastern kings. We have been plundered. We have been broken, and we are in need of redemption and salvation from the judgment of God, the great curse against humanity. We are inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the problem is sin and death lead us into darkness, just as the eastern kings led them and led Lot. How can we attain victory over such a foe? The same way that Abram attained victory. He went and he battled against the eastern kings, and by the grace of God he had victory. We find the same with us. Victory does not come by our own power, but by God's grace. As it says in Romans, by grace you have been saved through faith, which is a gift. 
Our faith in Christ is a gift, and it is this faith which gives us victory. So we find a great parallel with Abram and ourselves in this passage. Abram is the one who went, who battled, but it is God who gives victory. In the battle against sin and death, it is Christ who comes to our rescue and redeems us. And in that sense, Jesus is like Abram, and we are like the ones who are in need of redemption. We're Lot. However, we are also like Abram. Because once redeemed, we join in the victory. We are called to do battle. Each one of us is called to part, take part in the great fight against darkness. We are called to arms, called to stand firm against evil. We do this, though, when we are faithful. Now, some of you will wonder, Pastor, how am I called to do battle? I think a lot of times we can think that only those who are in missions or in pastoral ministry are called for such things. But did you know that this is not the case? Did you know that God uses you and you and all of you to fight against darkness? And that I have seen the battle and I've seen victory in each of you. How, you ask? Well, let's say that you don't want to pray, but then you do pray. Or when you don't want to go to Sunday service, but then you do go to Sunday service. Or when you don't want to give, but then you do give. Or when you're not sure about reading your Bible and you don't have the time, but you make time and you do it anyway. Or when you don't want to seek the Lord's face, but you do so anyway. Or when someone messes up in your life and you don't want to love them, whether that's your husband or your wife, or your children, or your parents, but you love them anyway. When you walk in step with the Spirit, when you do these things, you are fighting in the battle. You are taking up arms against darkness by being a light in these ways of faithfulness. And not only taking up arms, but you're also sharing in the victory. Mothers and fathers, you fight when you raise your children up in the way that they should go. When you are faithful in your call as mothers and fathers to train up your children in the Lord. When you do this, you are being faithful. And in that faithfulness comes victory over the world. The same with business owners. You fight when you are faithful to run your business for the glory of God. When you run your business under the lordship of Jesus Christ, knowing that even here, he is king of your life. You do this when you don't undermine your customers or your employees, but seek to glorify God in the work he has given you through moral business practices. Finally, each of us, no matter, what the problem, no matter who you are, um, when we each proclaim the truth of the gospel to those around us, when you bear witness to the change which God has done in you in this life, transforming you from a child of darkness to a child of God, when you tell others of the good news of Jesus and how you have been redeemed through him, when you do this, when the gospel is the center of your life, you have as great a victory as Abram has against the eastern kings, if not more. And in this, we praise God for the victory because he brings it to us. You see, there are so many ways we can be faithful to our God. There are so many ways that we experience the victory of Jesus over this world. And the majority of the time, we don't even recognize it as victory when it really is. 
Jesus' victory over sin and death is a powerful victory that touches on everything in our lives. Just as Jesus attained victory through his faithfulness, we attain his victory through our faithfulness to him. That is the truth of it. For it is not our own victory any more than it was Abram's victory. But when we are faithful in the ways that we are experiencing this great victory of Christ himself, it is his victory which we share when we live out our lives for his glory. It is his victory which is given to us by grace through faith. We experience it all. We experience the struggle, the sword swinging, so to speak, the shield bashing. We experience the fight, the darkness. But we know that his light and his might will win the day. We know this because Christ has conquered. And we know that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord. So stand firm on the truth of this. Stand firm knowing that our God is with us. He is for us, and he has already won the battles and the war itself. Be ready to fight. Be prepared to battle against sin, inside and out, knowing that those who are faithful partake in the great victory of Almighty God. And I think that we can see the gospel in this chapter because of this, because of how well the Bible interconnects themes. I mean, we see it when it comes to, I've already talked about Abram and Jesus and how we're also like Abram and Lot and how we're all connected together in these ways. But as it is, when it comes to origins and the gospel, yeah, it's not really there in this particular passage, but we can be sure that the origins is true and so we need to hear it, how each of us are made in the image of God. And this is wonderful and it's good news because that means the rest of it makes sense. The fall, though, is also is very prevalent, isn't it? Lot in his fall. Lot as he descends into the darkness of Sodom and Gomorrah and how he falls into sin and judgment because of it. And the question for us all is, what will Lot do next? Will he learn from his experience? Well, do we? (laughs) I would say no. And so again, the parallels are there. The fall is here and it's real in this passage and it's very tangible to us. And we see that the fall does deserve judgment. So the question is, if we deserve judgment, if Lot deserved judgment for living in sin and Sodom and Gomorrah deserve judgment for what they do in their cities, do we also not deserve judgment for our sins? And the answer, of course, is yes. We do. But praise be to God that there is redemption. Praise be to God that there is patience with God. That he doesn't just utterly destroy us with the first sin that we commit. He could do that, technically. But he doesn't. Instead, he's patient with us, just as he was even patient with Sodom and Gomorrah and with Lot. And even with Lot, we see this, again, the salvation aspect come in through Abram. And that's the same with us. We are saved from this curse. And it's through Jesus Christ. And this salvation, though, isn't to go back into our sin. It's not to return to the city of darkness and dwell and be content. It's to be a child of God. And how each of us, through Jesus, the redemption that he brings, brings us back. And we get to partake then in the victory ourselves. And it's a hard road. It wasn't easy for Abram to go and swing his sword. (laughs) Because there were other swords fighting against him. The same is with us. 
The same is with you. You swing your sword. Swords are coming back all the time. Um, something, one of my favorite things is Pilgrim's Progress. Anyone out there love Pilgrim's Progress? John Bunyan. Wonderful book. But there's this moment in Pilgrim's Progress when um, Christian, the main character, he's going to um, the wicket gate. But the arrows of the enemy <laughs> are about to get him. And it's right when the man at the gate closes the door, the arrow of strike right where the door was, right where Christian was. And the enemy is the devil in that case. Well, that's the case with us. We've got arrows in the air. What are you going to do? <laughs> Put up your shield. What's going to happen when the enemy is coming towards you? Swing your sword. Now, how do we attain victory over such a foe that keeps coming? Faith. By faith. And just as Abram experienced victory through, Christ, or through God, so we experience victory through God against our enemies. And where does that lead? It leads to our future. Our future where there is no more battling. A future where Christ comes down for the final time and says, Enough. This is mine. Evil, get out. <laughs> it's putting it simply, but it's the truth. Because Jesus is the ultimate victor. And through him, we attain the great victory as well. And so it's because of this we have our hope. It's because of him we have our peace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the story of Abram. And how even in this moment of battles and this moment of these kings and all that's happening in world history, we know that you are a God who is in control. And that ultimately your justice is what we can rely on and trust in the end. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to lead us in your justice and that you would continue to lead us in the path of faith and that ultimately we would trust in your name to bring us victory. We thank you, Lord, because you are a God who is strong, you are a God who is mighty, and you are a God who has continued to show us grace, even when we're undeserving of it. So, Lord, we ask that we would continue to dwell in this grace and continue to dwell in your mercy, and that your might would be with us as we fight. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn, Amazing Grace.